113 tonight. Uh, it's kind of uh, another one of those providential things that uh, kind of wound up here uh, during the week of Valentine's when we were thinking about love and, and all sorts of things. Uh, I was joking with my grandkids the other night, but I said uh, they used to give out Valentine's at school, and I think I had two little girls that gave me one. Nobody else gave me one. Uh, but but I was so shy that, that they eventually quit giving them to me too because they didn't wasn't gaining no ground. But uh, but uh, so I don't I don't know much about the whole Valentine's cards swapping thing. I've seen a lot of other people do it. They seem to love it. Uh, but we're talking about love, a very different kind of love, uh, in the passage tonight. Uh, I won't get to this tonight, but I'm in chapter 13. If you look uh, in verse 34. I'll come back to the first verse of chapter 13, but this is where I think Jesus is going and what he's really demonstrating in the passage that we will read. But in verse 33, he writes, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then he writes, he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by this, what he's just described, by that, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so, so when I'm reading this passage and working through this passage, uh, that's what kept ringing in my ear. Now, it seems clear to me that Jesus is demonstrating something about the love uh, that he was about to demonstrate in this hour that had come. So let's read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, this is critical by the way, what I do, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter, said, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed need only wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, Not all of you were clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you, know, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. 
I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who said, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Uh, I probably won't get uh, to verse, past verse 17 tonight, but what struck me about this passage was kind of the juxtaposition of what he's doing and his commandment later on, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Uh, there, is a, there is a divine love that I don't think is inherent or natural to us. Uh, I think sometimes we read the scriptures and we say, well, Jesus loved us, we ought to love one another, and we go out and love people, but we're not loving. I don't think we love in the way that Jesus is loving unless we get what he's saying here. So there's a, there's a special quality to the love which, which he's providing for in the Christian by which he goes and loves the world. Uh, and, and so I think sometimes that's why our love becomes subjective. Uh, it becomes unpredictable. Uh, it becomes narrow or it becomes so broad uh, and shallow that it doesn't minister to anybody. So when I'm reading this passage, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to try to understand what Jesus is saying about what the love of, of Christians should look like and what is he doing to provide for that. And so he begins here, and this was striking to me at first in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, and remember now, he knows that his hour has come. He's already said uh, in, in chapter 12, verse 27, uh, the hour has come. What shall I say, Father, deliver me? Of course not. For this hour I have come into the world. So this hour is upon him. So he's, he's thinking now in terms of his death. John's speaking that Jesus was aware that, that his sacrifice upon the cross was at hand. So when, when that tower had come, he knew Jesus knowing this and that he would depart out of this world to the Father. And then this statement, uh, I've been working with all day, literally since I woke up. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And they almost seem like three, three categories. The having loved talks about perhaps even the eternal love of the Son, uh, having loved them, uh, those who were in the world who were his own, having loved them from the, from the quality of having loved them. He's in the incarnation and in his ministry, he loves them or he loved them in the present. And he's about to demonstrate the, the, the end of that love, which is the hour that has come. He loved them to the end. So you, you see the, the, un, the, the unstoppable, immutable love of God displayed in Christ. Having loved them, loved them to the end. And so that tells me something about the quality of the love that he tells them later, love one another as I have loved you. And so we can't have an infinite love. Our love can begin through the spirit by faith and so forth. But the quality of the love has to be that way. Loving them, loving them to the end, to, the, to a sacrificial place, a sacrificial love. So it gives me right off the bat a little bit of a quality about that. And then he, he moves from there in verse 2 during the supper. Uh, I think this is the supper in which the Lord's Supper took place. But I think there was a general meal they were having there. And at some point in that meal, Jesus instituted uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, but I think this was in part of just the meal. Uh, perhaps they had eaten a bit. Uh, they were just reclining at the table. 
So during the supper, the devil, now this is important because there's someone in their presence in whom the devil has entered into their heart. The devil having already put into the heart of Judas, the son of Simon, to betray him. So the devil is planted in Judas. He's there in the midst of where Jesus is loving uh, with, with Satan having already planted in his heart this idea that he's going to betray Jesus. He's already calculating and thinking about how can I do this. I've already, I'm, I'm concluding now that I'm going to betray Jesus Christ. He's there where Jesus is loving. So, so John tells us that, I think, intentionally. Verse 3, so Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Notice as well, uh, that was, there's a parenthetical thing there like uh, where he says that the, during the supper, comma, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, uh, comma, Jesus. So you could almost read that during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things. You see the continuity there? It's almost like that's a parenthetical statement. John puts that in and says, by the way, in the, in the display about to happen, there is one who is in the midst and who will have his feet washed, who is betraying Christ. And so it's, it speaks to the quality of the love of Christ. So he goes forth now, this is what was striking to me in verse 3. Jesus, this is the mindset of Jesus now. Knowing, this is something he knows, that the Father had given all things into his hand. I think those things were coming to their culmination in the, in the cross soon. All judgment had been given over, as it were, into the Son's hands. There he would receive the judgment. Jesus, knowing this, this is my, this is my exalted place, the hour in which I am coming. God has given all things over into my hand. What I do in this moment determines the, the, the fate of the universe He's feeling that. This is John describing Jesus knowing this and, and that he had come forth from God. I came from the glories of the, the triune Godhead. I enjoyed an eternal fellowship within the Godhead. I am come from God. I have become incarnate and I am in the world loving, loving my own, loving them even unto the end, knowing all that's about to take place. I know where I came from. I know the glories of that place and that I am going back to that place. So these are the exalted recognitions of this Jesus who's sitting here having supper with the disciples. I know where I'm from. I came out from God. I know what hour this is. It is the hour in which God has turned all things over to me, handed all things over to me. I know the, the, the exalted nature of the work I am about to accomplish. I know where I came from, and I know in the accomplishing of that work, I'm going back to that place again. This is the exalted Christ. And the reason I make that emphasis is because what he does next in relation to that is nothing short of stunning. Because in that, John's acknowledging Jesus knows these things. And then he says, having completed that, verse 3, verse 4, then he gets up from the supper, lays aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. 
Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. I couldn't help but think of Philippians where it talks about Christ have this attitude in yourself, uh, Jesus being in, uh, in the form of, of God and not considered uh, equality with God, not something to be grasped or to held on to, but made himself a servant, took on himself the form of a servant. And he goes all the way through that. And finally at the end he says, unto, even unto death. He sacrifices himself even unto death. This is, this is what's on display here. This exalted Jesus whom John has made a point, a point of pointing out at us the exalted position of this one. This one of all those gathered around the table stands up. The most, the most exalted one there gets up and assumes to himself the role of the most humble of all. This servant who would wash the feet of the guest was the lowliest of the servants. I mean that was his task. That was what he did. That was his assignment, that when guests would come in, he would go around, wash the feet. So this is the lowliest of servants. So John is contrasting this exalted Christ taking the form of the lowliest of servants here. And so he takes these garments off. He takes his outer garments off, wraps himself with a towel, and assumes the role of this lowliest of servants and goes around washing the disciples' feet. Verse 6, as well as striking. So, he, striking. so he comes to Simon Peter in doing this. I can imagine that everybody's shocked. Jesus isn't saying a word for a lowly servant, wouldn't be communicating with the guest. He would simply be washing their feet. And so Jesus is assuming this lowly role of this servant, washing the feet. Nobody's saying anything. So he comes to Simon Peter. And we all know Peter and we love him. But he says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter, Peter knows this is Christ. This is the one I have confessed to be the Son of God. This is the one I have seen heal the blind and feed the masses. This is, this is Christ. You are washing my feet. I should, the implication is I should be washing your feet. That's the implication. So, so I'm going to get underneath you. I, I'm the lowly one here. And we would all acknowledge, well, that's the way I would feel. And Jesus washing my feet. Maybe the others felt the same way, but Peter in his characteristic boldness says it. Are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered him, this is what struck me and really where my thoughts have centered most of the day. Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not realize now, but you'll understand later. Now, if he means you'll understand what the foot washing is about later on, hereafter, then in verse 13, he begins to tell them what he just did. Do you understand what I just did? And they said, no. And he says, well, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. And if I, the teacher and Lord, wash your feet, then so you ought to do to one another. Is that what he means here? Does the hereafter refer to that? I'm not sure it does. I think it means you'll understand what this demonstration, the implications of it, and what, it's, what it portrays in regards to the nature of my love, you don't understand that right now, but you will. And I do believe there's a point after the resurrection and after the church began that Peter began to understand what this sort of love looked like, what this servanthood, what this, what this considering yourselves other, other, uh, under other folks and serving them and this authentic Christ-like sacrificial love felt like. Uh, 
Uh, I was thinking today, um, uh, talking with a, a brother this morning, but I was thinking today just about the ex- there is the love that we exercise by faith. We read the commandment, you are to love one another. Just as I have done to you, you ought to serve one another. We do that in obedience by faith. But I can do that by faith, initially at least, and not feel the affection. You know what I'm saying? The, the reality of it. So I do it by faith. And I think the Lord, through that obedience, will cultivate the affection down the road. But that's what I think he means to Peter here. What I'm doing, what I'm portraying, and, and what I am about to demonstrate in my hour, you don't understand now. You don't know. Even if I told you of this love, you wouldn't be able to comprehend it. But you will. You will hereafter. You will know what sacrificial love looks like. And it's striking to me that John is the, is the author that speaks this way because John went all the way to the cross with Jesus. The only of the disciples who watched him bleed and watched him sweat and watched all that transpired at the foot of the cross. John beheld the love of Christ all the way to its end. He he saw the depth and the nature of the love of Christ with his own eyes. That's why I think for the rest of his life he referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. That was overwhelming to him, the display of the love of Christ. And I think that's what Jesus is demonstrating here in this supper. He's the exalted one. You're right. He's the one who has the hour who has come. He is the one who has come from the Father and is returning to the Father. And all that is is rooted in the love of God. And so he loved you on the earth. Having loved you, he loved you here. And he's going to love you all the way to the end. And you don't understand, Peter, what I'm doing right now. But you will hereafter. You will hereafter. And to me, that says something, if I might jump ahead of myself, that says something about the nature of our love for one another in fulfillment of that command. If you, haven't, if you haven't beheld or experienced the love of Christ, then you are, you are loving others at best by faith, but you have not yet felt the affection. Here's, here's why I'm saying that. You have not yet come to the place to where your love will be, will be extended and exercised towards them even when you know that the consequences of it is their hatred towards you. You will love them through that. You will love them while they're hating you. This is the love of Christ Jesus is demonstrating on the cross. Some of the most profound words he says during the crucifixion was, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They don't don't understand what it is they're doing. Father, forgive them. And the implication in the language is that he wouldn't say it once. He was saying it over and over again as they were crucifying him. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. I'm loving them to the end. There is no greater display of the love of Christ than that sacrificial love. So Peter says, Jesus says, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter says to him, never shall you wash my feet. Now he's not only questioning Jesus, uh, demonstrating this love as it were, but he says to him, you will never love me. Well, if Jesus is portraying his love by his servanthood washing their feet, and you say to him, you'll never do that, then if that's the case, Peter, then you will never know my love. 
So Peter says to him, never will you wash my feet. This is why I think Jesus answers him in the way that he does. If I do not wash you, you will have no part with me. I don't think he meant, if I don't wash your feet right now with water and get the dust off of them, you have no part with me. I think what that means is what's being symbolized here, Peter, if it doesn't happen, you have no part with me. If I don't demonstrate, if I don't follow this love through to the cross and the events which you yourself are about to deny knowing me, if I don't follow this through, Peter, you will have no part in me. And that's what this washing is representative of. So Peter, you best take the washing. Peter doesn't want his feet washed. I couldn't help but think I would have probably fell into the Peter camp there because I I don't even want you washing my feet. I, I wouldn't. And the main reason I wouldn't is because it would make me, it would, it would embarrass me that you had, that I was, that you were doing something like that to me. It wouldn't be so much that you were doing it, I would be embarrassed for, for you. And it would make me uncomfortable for you. So it's not that my feet are that bad, I'm just saying it would just make me uncomfortable because it would put you in such a humble position, it would make me feel embarrassed. So I'd have been in the camp of Peter. I just said, Lord, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I just, I, I can't let you wash my feet. I, I want to wash your feet, but I can't wa- let you wash mine. And Jesus says to him plainly, Peter, if I don't do this, then you have no part with me. And a, another characteristic of Peter again, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but get my hands and my head too. If, if this washing is, is necessary for my having part with you or taking part with you, then not only my feet but my hands and heads just soak me in the water because I want all the fullness of being united and joined to you. So Peter reverses course very quickly. But I still think he doesn't understand because Jesus goes back to the, to the actual event that he's actually doing in verse 10. And he said, he was bathed, Peter, needs only to wash his feet. That's it. To me, he seems to be suggesting there, Peter, this is, not a, this is not a foot washing that is related to physical cleanliness or getting the dust off of you. You're not, you're not dirty in the physical sense, Peter. If a man's had a bath, all he needs is to wash his feet when he comes into the room. It's a, this is not what's happening here, Peter. He who is bathed needs, not, needs only to wash his feet, but then he shifts, but he who is clean... A bit, but, but is completely clean. And you are clean. So he shifts back now to the spiritual narrative of it. You are clean, but not all of you. Not all of you. And then he tells us that he's saying that because he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So remember now, uh, all indications are that Judas is still here at this moment. Satan's already entered into his heart. Jesus is aware that Satan's entered into the heart of Judas and that Judas is going to be the one betraying. And he's going around the table washing the feet of the disciples, uh, the feet of the disciples. And he engages in this little dialogue with Peter. And all this is happening. And all the while, there's Judas, the one who is betraying him. And he says, you are clean. You are all, you are all clean. Except for the one. When he says, not all of you are clean. Now, verse 12, he explains how this love looks manifested, I think. So when he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done unto you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, if I, in this exalted place, humbled myself to wash your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did. So, so for the reason I'm tying this to love is because the manifestation of the love of Christ was in the ultimate act of servant, uh, servanthood, which was that act upon the cross. The foot washing was, a, I think, a portrayal of that. And he's saying to them, you do what I done unto you. This exalted Christ <clears throat> takes upon himself the form of a servant and doesn't just wash feet, but he loves in a, in, a, in a clearly manifest way of giving his life upon the cross. And what I've commanded you to do, then you love in the same way. So he tells me that I can get everybody in this room up here and wash your feet, and, and you need not be any more convinced of my love for you than you are right now. But if I lay down my life serving you and loving you, whether you're difficult to love at times or whether you're easy to love at times, if I lay down my life, prefer you over myself, love you regardless of the pain that may be involved in loving you, if I do that all the way to the end, to the sacrificial thing, then I have modeled the love of Christ. I think this foot washing has a broader application, serve one another. But he follows this up, as I said, in these latter verses, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just like I loved you, just like I loved you. If I then, verse 14, your Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And this is the mentality I think that has to be there. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is, the one, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, verse 17, you are blessed if you do them. If you know them, you are blessed if you do them. Did you catch that condition on the blessing? In other words, you can do them, but he doesn't attach the blessing to doing them unless you know these things. <laughs> If you know this and do it, then you will be blessed. If you just do it without knowing these things, it'll have a practical value of some kind, and perhaps it might even endear you in the eyes of someone else, but there will be no divine blessing upon it because it is not typical or it is not, it is not exemplary of the love of Christ, which is what we are to be displaying when we love one another. I'm not... Here's what's in my heart. I'm not interested in, in you thinking I love you, and I'm saying this generally. I'm not interested in you thinking I love you. What I'm interested in is loving you in such a way as through that instrument you behold more clearly the love of Christ. That's the goal of loving you. That's why you love difficult people. That's why you, you, you love them unto the end. That's why you are self-sacrificing in your love to them. Husbands, Jesus says, Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's that sacrificial love. That's that love that exalts her and holds her as the object of the love. It is willing to die for that object of their love. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And then he issues a command in regards to the wife's response to that or, or the wife's duty in that relationship as well. So, so there's something about the love of Christ that I, I'm just drawing into here because I think there's a tendency to say 
He loved me so much, I'm just going to try to love people. And then you go out and you love people in your own strength. And sometimes people are really difficult to love and you, and you pick up biblical exhortations and you say, well, I've tried, I'm going to just dust my feet of them and leave the town. And so we find all kinds of verses to justify not loving them anymore. I've heard, you've heard it and you probably said it, I've said it. I love them, but I don't like them. In other words, I'm going to love you, but I don't like anything about you. Well, if I feel that way about somebody and I want to, I want to be exemplary of the love of Christ, then I am crying out to God. Oh, God, let my heart love them. Do you think Jesus went to the cross and said, I love them, but I don't like any of them. I don't have any affection for these people at all. But I'm going to go lay down my life, pour out my life's blood upon the cross to save these people that I don't care a whole lot about. But, I, but I've got to love because love is from God. I don't believe that at all. I believe there was genuine, authentic affections in Christ for his people in this world. Having loved them, he loved them to the end. Love. It's not without affection. And so when he says, I have given you an example that you should go love one another as I have loved you, does he mean that you love somebody and don't feel affection for them? No. You love them by faith because he has commanded us to do that. In fact, he has said, here's how the world's going to know that you're disciples of mine when you love like I do because that's not of the world and that's unnatural. That's divine. So, so how, are they gonna, how are we going to love those people without the affections that Christ has in his love? If I'm using his example and I'm loving someone just by a matter of faith and obeying the commands and I don't feel a love for them, I ought to be immediately convicted in my own heart. And here's what the conviction should be. You don't know enough of the love of Christ yourself. Therefore, you cannot love with this sort of affection. So it should drive me to my knees and say, Oh God, show me, let me behold more fully the glorious love of Christ for me so that having been affected by that, I can love others in the same way, beginning with my wife and children and my family, but, but not excluding those who are extremely difficult and, and even reject my love. Let me feel this affection. That's where I want to be. I think that's the kind of love that glorifies Christ. Not a conditional love. Not a love that extends out to those who, who make us feel good about loving them. Not, in fact, love that's difficult. Sometimes there's an affection but no capacity or no ability to, to express it in practical ways. This person may hate you and cut you off from hugs and there's no, there's no practical way to show them that you love them. But the heart can still have the affection. Oh, I do love them. And I grieve that they will not allow me to express the love. Oh, God, my heart is broken. And would you work in their lives that I might demonstrate to them not my love so much as your love. That's the challenge, right? That's the hard part about love. And if we just go through life, even as Christians, saying, well, we're to love one another, and we excuse ourselves for not feeling a genuine affection for others, lost and saved, then we just deceive ourselves into thinking that we're expressing the love of Christ. 
Now, I'm not saying this is an, is an overnight experience. I do think we have an obligation to obey his command. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. He's doing two things there. Not just that you love one another, but you do it in the way that I have loved you. So that sends me back to say, okay, how has he loved me? And then that is the description of the quality of the love that I am to love others with. Now, do I feel affection right away? No, but I, but I understand. I know the qualities of his love for me, and I'm praying along the way, and I'm trying to love people in practical ways. And what I find out over time is God begins to cultivate in my heart through, the, through, through rebuffs, through rejection, through heartbreak, through personal guilt and sorrow of my own lack of love, and all the sanctifying process, he begins to cultivate in my heart a love that is more similar to his love. And I find that suddenly that person that I was just loving by faith, now I just love. I love them. And I'm not even thinking about it's by faith anymore. I love them because I love them. And that seems to be the implication that he says in the very beginning here. Having loved them, he loved them. If you look at it grammatically that way, the source of his present love is the fact that he has loved you. The root of Christ's love is his love. It's not anything in that person that he's loving. And often that's our love to others as well. There may not be any quality in someone or any characteristic that is lovable uh, at all in their lives. And it's a supernatural thing for you to genuinely feel affection and love for that person. I got some of the, I got some of the most scorned looks and reactions one time uh, because I was uh, intimate, uh, building a relationship with someone who was a convicted sex offender and, and had, I believe, come to know Jesus Christ and was crushed by his sin. And, and, I, and I felt I want to build a relationship with him and, and be a part of God's discipling him. And I want to learn things as well about how God is discipling me. And, and when some people found out about that, I got some weird looks, almost as if he's beyond love. He's beyond that. He's gone too far. And it's hard because my emotions feel the same way. This is despicable. This is beyond restoration. And then the Lord reminds me, so were you. So were you. Me and Hope were talking the other night, and, and my, my mom's like this. I love her, and, and, but, and I think it comes from her past, and, and I'm the same way. But she, she says, sometimes I think that people who have a very sinful past just, just, to, just have a different feeling for the love of Christ. And she was talking to someone one time, and the lady said, well, I never got into it. The lady was giving her testimony. That was what it was. And the lady spoke up, and she said, well, I never got into any of those things. I was raised in church, and, and I did this and that and this and that, you know. And, and mom said she didn't. The other woman was testifying. Mom wasn't testifying, but she could relate to the other woman. And that woman started saying those things, and she said, and I think I'm thankful for the love of the Lord and, and all those things. Uh, but after she rehearsed that, I told my mom, I said, you know what, I'd have been, I would have been difficult for me not to say in that moment. I would have let her build the case for how she hadn't lived like that lady did. And when she got done, and I said, it took the same death to save you. It took the same one, the same cross, same Christ, the same event. 
it took to save you who grew up in church all your life, went to Sunday school and all the discipleship class, never sinned once in your life, never took a drink, never smoked anything, never had any kind of illicit sex outside of marriage. You lived a, a, a morally clean life. Well, did Jesus just get one nail for you? Did he just get a half a crown of thorns for you? No. He, he endured everything for you. Your sin separated you from God and condemned you to an eternal hell by nature if you never sinned at all yourself. Your very nature was sinful and you were just as needful of the sufferings of Christ as the one who spent a lifetime sinning every day in the most corrupt way. That same Jesus died for you. That's love. That's love. And I think until you begin to see that and by God's grace and his spirit, he begins to reveal to you the depth of the love of Christ, then, then you are ill-equipped to fulfill the command he gives here to love one another. You can go ahead. You can do that. And as I said, do it by faith. But don't do it by faith for 20 years and never have the affections and the feelings of love. Because if you do that, something's missing. Because I don't get any biblical recording anywhere that would support that Jesus died for us while not feeling love for us. While not feeling an affection for his own. And that's what was striking to me. Turn with me. Let me look at, finish up with these verses. Of course, Judas has already departed. Uh, it's interesting that Satan put in his heart first. And then later, verse 27, Satan then entered into him. So the idea was planted and then Satan entered into him. So Judas is being carried along by his by consent, obviously, but also by Satan himself, the spirit, the demonic, satanic spirit. So Judas is being carried along to his end. <clears throat> In verse 31, Jesus says, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. So here goes Judas, Satan in his heart, having planted the idea, and now Satan's in his heart controlling the life and, and activity in a willful heart And Judas. And Jesus looks at that horrible event that we would all be angry about and, and, and all these other things, and Jesus sees that event and says, now the Son of Man is glorified. So, so, so he's instrumental in the glorifying of the Son of Man. And the glory of the Son of Man is going to be what you see displayed on the cross in regards to true servanthood grounded in unconditional love. You're about to witness that. So he's glorified and God is glorified in him. Verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. And then the passage that I started with, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. It's as if he's saying this, as if this is what I'm leaving you with for now. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, this is the thing by which all men will know that you are my disciples. Uh, when I see a passage like that, sometimes I make a whole list of things that he doesn't say. He doesn't say, by this building, all men will know that you are my disciples. By your denomination, all men will know that you are my disciples. By your 
by your pews or by your chairs or by your stained glass or by your, by your overseas charities. By this love, the way you love one another will identify you and set you apart from any other people in the world. You will identify yourselves as my people because you love each other in the way that I loved you, sacrificially, preferring others above yourself. The world don't do that. You've been in the world. They don't love like that. In fact, it seems to me like most of the love of the world has more to do with self-love. I'll love you because you'll reciprocate, and that's what I want. And I want to be exalted. I'll love you, and I'll even love you to some degree sacrificially because you'll praise me for my sacrificial love, and my pride will be exalted, and I'll feel really good about myself. It seems to me that a lot of love in this world's eyes is self-serving, self-serving. Now, it's completely just for God to, to, to love in a self-serving manner because he is worthy, but it is not just for us to love in a self-serving manner because we are the sent and we are the slaves. He just told them, the master, the slave is not above the master, neither is the one sent above the one who sent him. And so you ought to love one another with the love of Christ. A strong exhortation from the scriptures. Stand with me. I'll leave it, leave it at that. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for your love. Thank you for the love of Christ that is, even as we strain to grasp the depth of it, it is incomprehensible in some ways. But Father, what is clear is that it was a love that took him to the cross. It was a love that caused him to be resolved to endure the harshest of deaths. It was a love that caused him to love the very ones who were mocking him and bringing harm and tearing his body apart. It was a love that loved to the end. Lord, I do believe that John, having seen that love on full display in person, forever affected him. For the rest of his life, as far as Scripture is recorded, he refers to himself not as John, but as the one whom Jesus loved, seemingly in an effort not to, not to exalt himself in the least, but to exalt the love of Christ. And Lord, I do pray that we will be distinguished in our community by the way we love one another by the way we love in general. And Father, I pray that Christ would be our example. If we love someone by faith, Father, I pray that we will not be long before by your spirit you cultivate in our hearts a genuine, authentic affection, a genuine care for that person or those people. And Lord, I can understand as well that that's a divine work. That is a work of the spirit brought about by the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you would bring it to pass in the hearts of each of us who are here tonight and who have known and been beneficiaries of the love of Christ. Paul tells us in Romans that we can never be separated from that love. And so, Father, all the things that we understand about your love, Lord, help that be the model for how we love one another. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. I pray that you would encourage them in the challenges that they face in their lives each day and every day, even sometimes every moment of every day. And Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them in such a way that would encourage their heart and make the ground under their feet stable and that they would be moved 
to follow you more fully each day, myself included. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.